following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. God does not intervene. If something doesn't happen, 
the very promises of God are in jeopardy here. So the expectation is that God's going to do something. And in chapter 2, we, we see him uh, really a turning point. That God is paying attention, and he begins his saving work. And he begins that, uh, not with the nation, but with one particular individual, who we know will grow up to be the deliverer of the nation. God's appointed agent to lead them out of Egypt. And so God begins by saving this uh, little Hebrew child. So let me just, I'm not going to read the story, because I really want you to kind of get the impact of the story as I tell it. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. But I'm just going to kind of tell the story. Um, with, uh, some contributive thoughts along the way. First off, uh, we know that the story starts with a man from the tribe of Levi marrying a Levite woman. Um, if we know further into the story, we know this is significant because the tribe of Levi will be the tribe of what? Kings or priests? Priests. You said king, go back, write paper. Yeah. Uh, the priests, right? Uh, Judah would be the, the, uh, the tribe of the kings. Levi was to be the type of the priest, and it, it foreshadows or, or gives us a precursor of one of uh, Moses' roles that he will be, uh, in addition to deliverer, he will be in a priestly role over Israel. It's um, kind of a little side note, but the author's careful to point that out from the very beginning. Um, and uh, so the couple get married, both Levites, uh, the, the lady becomes pregnant, and she gives birth to a son. And uh, like any mother, she holds this baby who she knows is under a death sentence. And I'm sure for a lot of these moms, you can imagine they're, they're praying for daughters. Right? Please give me a daughter. Because right? the son's wife, you know, they're under command from the Pharaoh to throw them into the Nile River. But she sees this, to her this beautiful baby boy, and he is dearly precious to her. Now, and we all know, I just got to say this, we all know that newborns are not always all that beautiful, right? And this man, a newborn here this morning, super cute, right? There's something adorable about them, despite their little, little red. There's something precious. to a mom, super precious, right? And she holds this precious child. She cannot even fathom, right? And so she determines in her heart, like I'm sure all the moms of her day did, to do everything possible to save this child. So she hides him away in her house for three months. Uh, during the first three months, it's fairly easy to hide a baby. They just supposed to sleep a lot, right? Uh, and she can she can muffle his cries. Uh, she can keep him somewhat hidden. Like just imagine that one day he's maybe three or four months old. Little guy's having a tough day. Maybe he's getting some teeth. Maybe he's got an earache. I don't know, but but he can't be consoled. And he starts just screaming. I just love that part of parenting. And nothing the mom can do, nothing will stop him. He just screams and yells and cries and screams. And 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 the mom starts getting more and more tense, like. He's drawing attention. Somebody's going to peek in. Somebody's going to walk by and see this, this baby boy and rip him out of her arms and turn into him out of her. So she's panicked. And she realizes that he's getting to an age where she can no longer easily hide him. So she comes up with a plan. And she 
takes a uh, box made of bulrushes or papyrus, and she determines to make uh, an ark, a little ark. And said, most translations miss this, but in the Hebrew, it actually uses the literal word ark. Same word as Noah's ark. And uh, so it places the only two places in the Old Testament that, that is used in reference to Noah and in reference to this little a water cradle for Moses. Uh, she takes this box and she seals it with uh, pitch and tar just as Noah did. Not really believe in her mind and in her thinking, she's, she is, is, as an act of faith, she is saying to God, God, if you rescued Noah on the waters of an ark, okay, I'm doing my part, I'm building my ark, and I am placing it in your hands. It's up to you to save him. And so she puts baby in this little box, this little ark, and she takes it down to the Nile River and she places it among the reeds where it will be hidden. And also it will be somewhat secure to the river the current cannot take it downstream. Uh, for years and years I thought, I kind of had this picture that she just take them out and drop them off the bridge and watch them sail away. It doesn't, no, she does. Right? She's not abandoning her baby and sending him off to, you know, his fate. She's trying to hide him to further protect them in the hopes that there in the Nile, kind of away from the city, away from town, uh, his cries would not be heard. They would be muffled among the reeds and the noise of the, the river and the activities going on in the birds and the wind, and people would not hear him. As you can imagine, he has three, three month old baby putting in a box, dumping it up in the river, right? Hoping nobody finds him. I'm sure they shouldn't intend to leave him there 24 hours, 7 on the clock. I'm sure the plan was that he would be there during the day, or he would be secluded and safe. She would perhaps go during her lunch break, nurse him, put him back in the box. In the evening when it's dark, pull him back out, take him home. And, and to kind of one last measure of safety, she, uh, she places her daughter, baby's older sister, at a distance to watch over the basket, to watch over the baby, to see what will become of him. Um, so, uh, so that's the scene. Baby's in the basket, and now we're in the breeze, sister's watching at a distance. And then things, the worst possible, worst imaginable thing that could happen, group of Egyptian ladies starts coming down to the river and they're headed right to the spot, the exact spot, where the ark is floating. I can just imagine uh, this older sister watches in horror and terror as these ladies get closer and closer and closer. And she knows what will happen if they discover him. They are commanded by Pharaoh himself to throw this thing into the Nile and he's right there. It's going to be pretty easy. I'm sure the sister's thinking, she didn't know this, but the river is over 4,000 miles long. 4,000 miles of river, you gotta pick this spot, right? This is the only spot you can come and take a bath? She's thinking, man, God, a little help here, please. Um, but no, they go right, and she sees that not only is this just a group of ladies, but this is Egyptian royalty, this is one of the daughters of Pharaoh. One of her servant girls, and uh, just just to clarify, the chances are that this is not Pharaoh's only daughter. You've seen the movie, the cartoons, you know, where Pharaoh has two 
you know, two grandkids. Okay, probably not, right? Most royalty in those days had dozens, if not hundreds, of children. Okay, they're also quite good at making babies and have lots of wives. The chances are uh, he's got more than one daughter. Regardless, the, the text focuses on this one. And she goes to the river to bathe. And uh, her servant girls walk along the bank as she goes into the river to bathe. And boom, right there in the reeds, she sees the ark. And she calls her servant girls to go float out of the water. And they do. And uh, I'm sure the older sister is just panicked. Right? What is going to happen when they see this baby, who's obviously a human child, and they see that he's a boy. And her, uh, I can just imagine the anxiety and tension rising for her as, as this Pharaoh's daughter removes the lid off the ark and sees this baby, not as their baby, but he's crying, of course. What's going to happen? He is really in hot water. He's in a, a bad spot. Then the most amazing thing happens. This woman sees this child and she is moved with compassion. Literally, it says in Hebrew that her heart goes out to him. And uh, an older sister watching the distance sees her face and she sees that she's not harsh, she's not angry, she's not bloodthirsty. She is tender and gentle and compassionate and concerned about this little child and she picks this crying baby up and tries to console him and she is very motherly to this child and uh, pops into the girl's head she calls out to Pharaoh's daughter hey would you like me to go to the Hebrew women and fetch somebody who can nurse him and the princess says yes go so she runs into town and she finds who? The baby's mother. Right? The baby's mother brings her back to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter says, perfect. I want you to take this baby away and nurse him. And, and here's what, you know, I know you're a slave. I know I can command you to do this. I know I can make you do it. But here's the thing, I'm going to pay you a wage to do this. So Moses' mom, the baby's mom, takes him home to be his mom and she gets paid for it. Not as a slave, but as a servant. Uh, it was common and likely that uh, in those days they would have nursed a baby for two, maybe even three years. Being that she was his mom, I'm sure she stressed that as long as she could. Right? Uh, but there came a day when he was grown. And she returned him, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and gave him to her. And the text says that he became her son. She adopts him as, as, as her son. Uh, and the sign of that is that uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, names him, which in, in, in ancient times was a, was a mark of ownership. It was kind of where you sealed the deal of, of, of adoption. It was official because he was named by her. And her uh, she gives him a name that is, let me know, it's Moses. It's an Egyptian name. So she marks him as an Egyptian citizen, not a, not a Hebrew slave. 
But interestingly, she gives her a name that has a meaning. Uh, and she interprets this meaning for us when she says, I named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. It's a name that forever would indicate to Moses where he came from. That he was an adopted child who was rescued from a watery grave by this princess. Um, and so God, in, in really quite an astonishing and remarkable way, uh, saves Moses. And uh, um, it's, it's a great picture, a reminder for us of what it means for God to save somebody. What it means for God to save. And God's salvation is never minimal. It's never happened or just a temporary fix. When God saves, it is a complete and total reversal in circumstances. That's what we see here happening to Moses. Moses isn't just rescued a little. He is given a completely different situation and circumstance in life. A radical reversal of where he started from. Uh, he, he goes from being under the curse of death to living a life of privilege. Right? He goes from being an enemy of Pharaoh to being a local member of Pharaoh's household. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, from hiding for his life to being welcomed and protected by the very person, the very family that wants to kill him. And ultimately, he's reversed from being a slave to being a son. Right. And that's, that's how God saves people. Um, it's never partial. Right? It's never minimal. And it really is, uh, in, the, in the context of what's happening in Exodus, it really is a picture of, of what God's about to do, right? Because just exactly what God does here for Moses, he intends to do for the people of Israel. He's not just going to send them off to be refugees in yet another country, right? God intends to save them, and save them in a way that will be a great reversal of their circumstances, where they as a people... Uh, will return from slaves to free, from worthless and hated to dearly loved and treasured. Much as Pharaoh's uh, daughter was moved in the heart of compassion at the cries of his baby, so God hears and he responds and he wants to love and care for these people. Uh, they are precious to him and he longs that they would not be slaves but that they would be his dearly loved children. And uh, this is the first step of what God is about to do, what He's about to make happen. But the picture is even more than that. Right? It also, of course, is a picture of God's great and ultimate salvation in Jesus. God intends to save the world in the same way, not half heartedly or minimally, but God's salvation means for us a radical transformation from slaves to sons. Crazy foreshadows what Jesus would do is he would he would bring us out of bondage and set us free as his as his adopted children. But we too move from slaves to sons. So what does all this have to do with our, our work? Yeah, that's kind of the story. Let's unpack it just a little bit and look at um, how this relates to where we get work, our value as a human being as a, as a person. Um, I believe that this story is about God changing our circumstances, our place in life, from one of being really worthless to being dearly loved 
sons and daughters. Right? And that really is the basis of, of self-worth. Let's unpack this just a little bit. Let's back up just a little bit. And look at the question, and, and, and let me say this. This is a, this is a big question. I'm not going to give the whole answer in the next 15 minutes. Um, but this books, and we can do a whole series on this, I'm not going to. But I'm just going to give a big picture, right, and some, a couple of basic principles that I hope will, will be helpful. Um, I encourage you, as always, to, to take what I shared this morning, talk about it with other people, talk about it with your family, with your kids, uh, in, your, in your home groups, and kind of unpack it further. Okay? But I'll give you some things to start thinking about. Um, here's the first principle. Okay. Uh, backing things up a little bit, uh, in our story, okay, we're not talking about Exodus anymore, we're not talking about Israel, we're talking about us, right? Where do we get self-worth from? Well, the first problem with this whole thing is that it's really hard to find worth when you are worthless. Yeah, I know you came to church to hear that this morning. You're all worthless. Right? We are worthless. Uh, we were born into sin, the Bible tells us. From the very beginning of our existence, we were born into wickedness. Uh, we were treacherous, rebellious sinners. And, uh, and no matter how you slice this, no matter how you look at this, this is not a good place to start building self-esteem and self-worth. Right? I have worth because I'm, I'm a creep. I'm a loser. I'm wicked. I have rebelled against my creator. And obviously, I'm worth it. There's a disconnect. Uh, at the core of our being, we are traitors to God. And we are says we are desperately wicked. We're not just a little screwed up, we're really screwed up. We are seriously broken people who are born and we come into this world. So, so how do you find worth when you're broken, when you're messed up, when in reality you are worthless because of the ravaging effects of our sin? Well, that creates a problem. And, um, and so what happens is, inherently we know this. No matter how much a person will tell you they're not a sinner or they're a pretty good person, the reality is deep down inside there's this nagging, pestering reality that I, I, I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm sinful. So where are we going to get worth from then if very core of my being, I'm worthless. Well, obviously we need to look outside of ourselves to find worth and significance. But our worth must come from somewhere else. It can't come from who I am because I am too messed up. It must come from beyond, from some other place, outside of who I really am. Um, and, and so, as we search for significance outside of ourselves, it can come from a couple different places. And where you look is going to have a lot to do with how old you are. Now, all of you, those of you who are like 35-ish and over, raise your hand. Okay, for purposes of discussion, you're old people. <laughs> you are an older generation. Now, some of you don't be in that generation. You know, if you're up to 40, I'll give you some grace. 40, though, is a hard line. Okay. Now, how many of you are under that? You're like 35-ish and under. 
You're going to see this problem different. And let me let me let me break those down into those two age groups. Okay, so first, those old people, the former older generation. Where did you find work? How did it work for you? Well, in the past, for and actually for quite a long time, it's worked this way. We look outside, or we look outside to the groups we belong to to give us work. Now, those groups could be anything like our parents and family, our peer group. Maybe our religious community, like church, uh, or society, and, and kind of the expectations of society in general. And how this works is the group, whatever it is, your peers, your friends, parents, right? They they define what you must do and be uh, to have work. Right? They kind of set the standard for how you will measure up to their expectations. Right? What you must do, what you must be. And the standard usually has things to do with how you will benefit the group as a whole. So, for example, murdering people usually won't get you a lot of self-worth and praise from the community because the community doesn't like being shot at, right? So, that's not the most important. Maybe even kind of more practical and realistic. Uh, the, the group says you need, to, you need to get a job, you need to earn an income, uh, you need to be able to pay your bills and take care of yourself because the group doesn't want to take care of you. Right? They don't want to buy your groceries and they don't want to pay for your education and they don't want to buy your house. Right? So if you want to be approved by the group, take care of yourself, get a job, be a productive part of society. That's the language we use. And so there's these expectations, these rules, these set of standards that tell you how you will be approved by the community. And, this, and our hope is that if we do that well, we get a real job, we get a real house, and hope we get a house bigger than the other guy to show. We didn't just get the house, we got a good house. A house bigger than your house. And the society group will, will applaud you. We didn't go, you are successful. I don't have to take care of you. In fact, I want to borrow your lawnmower, right? Because you have, yours is better than mine, right? So you can contribute to the group. You can, you can benefit society. And as we do that, we get praise and applause for our accomplishments. And when we get that praise, we are applauded for our accomplishments, how do we feel? Yay, I did it. I am worth something to the world because I have a lawnmower and my neighbor can borrow it. And he praises me. I just I am appreciated, I am valued by the group. But for most of the older people, this is how it works. And uh, I think it works quite well, right? Uh, just, just perform well enough, and you can get praise, and life's going to go good. Because um, if you don't perform well, and you won't get praised, then you'll have conscious self worth, and you'll have to go see counsel. Uh, if that's the case, then they get money, and they get happy, and they get so that's kind of how old people look at this. Now there's some problems with this, and we'll see those in a minute. But let's switch gears and look at young people. Okay, and uh, this is this is kind of new for me, and I didn't make this up. I actually I've been reading books that have been helping me understand this because uh, the world has changed, is changing. And for those of you who are older and who have this mindset, you need to understand that those people that are in that 35 and under group they see this very differently. And if you can understand this, it will help you understand some of the things that are happening in our world right now. Um, 
just to, just to illustrate this change, um, and I'm not picking on politicians, I don't know, I'm not trying to make a political statement here for sure, but um, if you know anything about US politics, you've been watching the crazy elections coming out of the United States, and you're scratching your head, I'm scratching my head too, and trying to figure it all out. And, um, but one of the interesting colorful characters of this whole process has been Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was a presidential candidate, and he marshaled a huge following, huge following. And in the basis of what Bernie Sanders said is this, we want to buy your groceries, and we want to pay for your education, and we're going to buy your house. Right? Now, to the old people, us old people, what is that? Ah, this is crisis, right? No, no, this is, this is you're going to suck the community dry. That's all about the group. But he found a huge following among younger people who said, yeah, oh yeah, buddy, that's how it should be. Right? Buy my house for me. I like this one. Right? So what changed, what shifted that made uh, that message sell so well? What is it about the younger generation that is so different from those who preceded? Well, here, here's the deal. Uh, their kids, millennials, younger generation growing up, they watch their parents and grandparents, and they really observed that, that we old people were living in bondage to the cultural expectations around us. And that all these demands on us were, were choking out our life. We were trying to get words from people who oftentimes didn't care. And uh, we work ourselves to death. But in the end, we don't feel very worthy, and we give all the control and power that over to somebody who becomes our, our master. We become enslaved by these expectations. And so the younger generation says, hey, we're not going there. Right? That's just stupid. And they've got a good point, right? It is kind of stupid. I said, we're not going to go there. So instead, they are told that the message of the modern world is, you don't find worth outside of yourself, you will find worth inside yourself, right? Now, there is, uh, there is some kernel of truth in this. We'll see that in fact pack of words where it comes from. Um, but the problem is this. Uh, worth comes from in me by what? By fulfilling my dreams and all my desires. So the message is go out there and fulfill yourself. Pursue your dreams. Pursue your desires regardless of what anybody says. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. In, in, in the modern generation, there is no right or wrong, no rules. Right? The group can't tell you what to do. Identity is not realized by curbing our individual desires for the good of the group. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anyone says. I've been older person, this is like, like I'll shoot you all kinds of red flags. If you're a younger person, you're like, yeah, so, what's wrong with that, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of why there's so many times in the world that you don't see these things. I say, now, if you're older, uh, like, this is so important to us. I didn't really get this, but I didn't really start to wrap my head around how this would work. But here, here's an example from a movie you may be familiar with. Have you seen the movie Frozen? Frozen. 
Yeah, how many of you guys sing the song? Okay, kids, go for it. Let it go. Let it go. We sing it for our closing song. Probably not. Okay? So if you didn't see the movie or if you've been a while, here's just kind of a story. Princess Elsa is exploring the special power that she can control snow and ice and manipulate it, right? Uh, but growing up, she has a problem controlling this power and ends up hurting lots of people, right? Uh, in short, um, she can't meet the expectations of the group uh, because her powers clash with all the rules. So, so all kinds of climax one day when the power's kind of erupt and, 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 and in the wrong place that we see it, they, they call her a monster. They said, no, you're, you're, you have no worth. You are worthless because you cannot control your powers and meet our expectations. So how does she deal with it? Well, she runs away and she decides that she's not going to let people call her through anymore. She's going to what? She's going to be her own person. She's going to fulfill her dreams. She's going to be who she is. And uh, if you watch the movie, right at this point, there's this great song, this very triumphant, victorious song. Have you ever listened to the words? Here, here's a Here's a few of the words. It starts out with kind of where she was, being, being pressured to conform. Don't let them in. Don't let them see the real thing. Be a good girl. You know you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. But then what happens? Well, the song goes on. Well, now they know. Right? So, let it go. Let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. Hold it bothering anyone. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. And I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. You see, you see the shift? You see the shift? So, so, so this is the deal. In the younger generation, you gain your worth by what? By rising and being me. Not by being perfect, but by being exactly what you are, no matter how ugly and brutal it is. Um, so, so which of those is the better option? Well, neither one. Okay. And growth there, both of them have serious, serious flaws. Um, neither works. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why. I'm going to give two quick summary reasons why neither one works. First of all, for uh, the millennials from the younger generation, the reality is you cannot avoid being shaped and influenced by the world you live in. Okay? Uh, you, you, can, you can try to find the worth inside only, but the world will tell you what parts of inside you are, are acceptable. And to illustrate this, imagine there's, there's two guys, Bart the Barbarian, you know, a third century Germanic guy who's out to conquer Rome. Right? Uh, and then there's Michael the Millennial. He lives now on this round, you know, backpacker 
these two guys have two impulses that, uh, that they deal with in their life. Okay? And they're the same impulses. The part of the part that they're bearing, he has this driving impulse to kill and break and bash and destroy everything he sees. Valued 
because of what we are. In the end, we are valued and shared not because of what we do, but because of what we are. But we must be remade into something from worthless to something valuable that's done for Jesus. Where should we find our word? Ultimately, we need to find our word, our meaning, our identity in life as God's children. If you're a parent, you know how this works, right? No matter how much kids have laughed, no matter how obnoxious they are, no matter how much they pick their nose and rub on you or whatever, you know, does it change their, their value to you? No. There's nothing your kids can do to diminish how much you value them. Because they're in that place, not just what they do or how they perform, but because they are a child, whether by birth or by adoption, to treasure Here's the good news. If our word is as God's children, there's nothing we can do to either increase or diminish our worth before God. He values you more than you can imagine just because you're his child. If he's kid, he's your dad. That's the place of our word. One last thought on the top of that. Worth is different than joy. Worth is the sense of where our value lies, who values us. But joy is the emotions, the thrill, the satisfaction of being in that place. Uh, and, and that's a little different. Uh, we know our worth um, is found as uh, children. But where does joy come from? Well, we remember the two, two main statements that God the Father makes about Jesus when he's on earth. Where they are, with baptism, and the Mount of Transfiguration, God makes a statement about Jesus as his son. What does he say? First of all, he says, this is my dearly loved son, my beloved son. That's a statement of word. Jesus knew that word for the Father simply because he was the Father's dearly loved Son. What's the rest of the equation? In whom I am well pleased. Why was the Father pleased with Jesus? Because Jesus was obedient. He was the Son who lived to please the Father. This is how it works in our life. There's nothing we can do, we can be the worst world ever. The truth about that is the Son. But there's a lot of joy and satisfaction in life that we had when we lived as sons who delight him as our father. When we love to make him happy. And make us happy. To hear those words, here's my child in whom I delight. Because there's a son who pleases me. What do you do with all that? Like I said, it's just touching on that issue and a couple of things to propose. Are, are, are you trying to find a word, approval, affirmation? Are you living your life in such a way that you are trying to get these things from other people? 
Are you living for the praise of, of man? Or are you younger and just trying to fulfill your dreams? And by being whoever I think I am, regardless of what the rules are, I'm going to be happy with it. I'm going to find a word. Well, I urge you to. Both of those are a bondage. Right? Turn away from those things and root our identity in Christ. And being adopted as sons of the Lord, as children of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much that you love us. And most of all, you love us as a father to a child. That's throughout scripture how you have chosen to most designate uh, the kind of relationship you have with us. Lord, I pray that you would be at the very core of how we see you here as human beings. Lord, that that would be the driving force of our life. Not how we perform, what we do, not trying to earn the approval of people. But instead, Growing near your children and delighting in doing what pleases you simply because you're our dad. But help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.